You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. Interesting. God left them there to test them. The word testing here, God wanted to prove them. He wanted to prove their faith. He wanted to prove their faithfulness of Israel to himself. And he also wanted to improve their reliance on him. What was the call from the mountain in Exodus? What was the call? Come out and serve me on this mount. You will be my people and I will be your God. God was going to be, he wanted them to be a theocracy, which is governed by God. The name Israel means governed by God. That's what he wanted. God allowed the nations surrounding Israel to remain as a challenge to see if they would continue to trust him or follow other gods. Pastor Dave teaches us that they failed the test. He is also trying to show us that this story relates to Christians today. We've been presented with the same challenge. Now let's turn to the third chapter of Judges and join Pastor Dave with today's edition of A Sure Hope. You are sure. We are going to be in Judges 3, and we are going to start looking at this group of men and women that the Lord has raised up to judge the nation Israel. And remember, the word judge in Hebrew actually means deliver. Okay, so we're going to start looking at them in specifics. So we got three people today in Judges 3. So if you will turn into your Bibles to Judges 3. If you didn't bring your sword and would like to follow along, we have Bibles that you can look at. Raise your hand. We'll get you one. Okay. So we're in this great book. We've jumped in full throttle. But I want to remind you something. We're studying the record of Israel's failures as a nation. That's what the book of Judges is all about, Israel's failures. But more importantly than studying Israel's failures, we're studying how God is ever faithful. And even in the midst of Israel's failings, even in the midst of Israel's disobedience and unfaithfulness, God found the way to show his faithfulness and his love. This should give us great solace. This should give us great peace when we see a living and loving God who remains forever faithful. God is forever faithful. And even in the midst of Israel's disobedience and unfaithfulness, God was ever faithful to them. And he declared to them in verse one of chapter two, when he swore to them that I will never break my covenant with you. Wow. Wow. You know, it's extremely sad when you see people who once walked with the Lord depart and return to their old lifestyles. Imagine how the Lord feels when that happens. Those of us who are parents know what happens When a son or daughter turns their back on the family. When a son or daughter rejects the family. Imagine how God feels when this happens. 
Many have been turned off from Jesus because of the hypocrisy they see that's being done in his name. But let me say this, all the faithlessness of man doesn't disapprove the faithfulness of God. I'll repeat that. All the faithlessness of man does not disapprove the faithfulness of God. For our God is ever faithful and his word says he cannot change. Yet there are those people who don't believe in Jesus Christ and it's so sad. But whether you believe or you don't believe doesn't change the facts. It doesn't change the facts. You have the right to believe and you have the right not to believe. God has given us free will. It doesn't change the fact. Your believing or not believing doesn't affect it one way. The fact is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he died for our sins. He died for your sins, for my sins. Make it personal. He died for my sins. Whether you believe it or not, that remains a fact. So it's ridiculous to say, I don't believe. And to think that just because you don't believe, it's not true. It's absurd. See, Israel's disobedience did not cancel out God's faithfulness. And neither will yours. It will not cancel out God's faithfulness. But we need to be careful because we cannot only study this book, this writing, who we believe was written by the prophet Samuel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know. Well, we can't take it just as a history lesson. It can't be just a history lesson to us because if we do, we'll miss the message that is in the book. This book is as applicable today as any New Testament book you can think of. This book really is about us. This book is about us, and we must take this and then apply it to us and put ourselves in Israel's place. Now, I'm not preaching replacement theology. Please, don't go there. That is not what I'm preaching. The church is the church. Israel is Israel. However, we can learn from Israel's mistakes. We can learn from these things, and we need to look at this. We learn that the children of Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. As long as Joshua was alive, Israel served the Lord. They had a fantastic and great leader. We also read in Scripture that all the days of the elders who followed Joshua, Israel continued to serve the Lord. Once again, they had great leadership. Why? Because Joshua and the elders had witnessed the Lord's greatness. They had witnessed the Lord's faithfulness. I mean, Joshua and Caleb were one of the ones that came out of Egypt with the rest of Israel. They saw God's faithfulness. They saw God's handiwork. They saw how he took care of the enemies. They watched this and they knew it. And it was in their hearts. They knew God's mighty power. They knew God's long suffering. They knew his mercy. They experienced his protection and they experienced his covering. Some of you out there know all too well God's covering and protection. Some of you all too well know God's healing. Know all too well God's, God's guidings. And we all know all too well God's long suffering. But Joshua and the elders died off. The circle of life. And a new generation rose up. And they didn't know the works of the Lord. They didn't know this God. So Israel 
because of this, fell into disobedience and they became unfaithful to God. Now, Israel failed on several fronts. They failed on several things. Number one, they failed to possess the entire land. They didn't go in and take all the land. They took some of the land. They started to make treaties with the others in the land. And not only that, but they failed because they didn't train up their children. They didn't train up their children and admonish them in the way of the Lord. And this is something that we need to learn. If you have children, train them up in the Lord. If you have grandchildren, train them up in the Lord. If you have nephews and nieces, train them up in the Lord. Because if we don't, and the Lord tarries, this too could happen to the church. We see it happening now. That's our job. We have the word in front of us and we need to reach out to the younger people. We need to reach out to this new generation and show them the works of the Lord and let them catch God for themselves. Israel failed to do that. You can read all about that. God's pledge to them in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, where God actually tells them that this is what they have to do. Teach them the word of God. Have them rely on me. See, God wanted them to know his word so much that it permeated every area of their life. That every area that they walked in, God would be seen. He says, when you wake up in the morning, talk to your kids about the Lord. When you're walking at the pond during the day, baking bread or doing the chores, talk to the Lord. Talk to the children about the Lord. Right before they go to bed at night, talk to the children about the Lord. That's what God is telling them. Your lifestyle should be that which exudes the Lord. And if somebody looks at your lifestyle, they should say, wait a minute, there's something different about you. It must be the Lord that's making you different. You should you be able to tell them, admonish them, let your conversation be about God. Not only let it be a part of your life, let it be your life. Let it be your life, your totality. The word of God and the things of God. If you look at Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul goes through this great litany of these things that we should meditate on. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, blah, it goes on and on and on. He said, meditate on these things and these things that you've seen me do, follow as an example. That should be our admonishment for us with our children and our children's children and those that are around us. Those that are all around us, and you know that old saying, it takes a village. Well, yeah, if the village is teaching God, it does take a village. We're all responsible. That's why we dedicate a baby. That's why we hold a baby up in our arms and we say, we're dedicating this baby to the Lord. And all of us are going to help this mother and father raise this child up in the Lord so that this doesn't happen to them. Israel failed at this. They failed. They grew into disobedience. They became more and more unfaithful to God. And although he never broke his covenant with them, they broke their part of the bargain. They broke their part of the bargain. And we do too sometimes. We break our part of the bargain. They turned their backs on God. Instead of keeping their covenant, they made covenant with the nations that they allowed to stay in the land. They started making covenants with them. They gave their daughters to be married to their men. They took from the pagans women to marry their daughters. This was against God's rule, against God's law. They intermingled, they intermarried. What began as a series of compromises ended in full-blown disobedience, which is sin. 
Full-blown disobedience is sin. And the Lord became greatly displeased. And the scripture says he grew hot with anger. I don't want to experience that. I don't want to know that anger. Israel sinned against the Lord by allowing the nations to stand in the land. Anytime we start compromising with sin, sin will eventually win out. When we fail to conquer sin, sin will conquer us. Christ died for the sins of the world. He died for my sin. He died for your sins, past, present, and future. But when we fail to take them to the cross, repent of them, and confess of them, we allow them to fester and grow, and they eventually conquer us. Israel's sin was long and extensive. They forgot all the blessings that God had provided them through their fathers. They didn't either believe by faith or they rewrote their history so it didn't exist. We see that happening today. They forsook the Lord. They weren't trained in the word of God. They didn't know Joshua. They didn't know Joshua's God. They never heard the word of Joshua when he said, follow the Lord. This happens when we forget the word of God. When we forget the word of God, we start putting the word of the world in. No one in Israel sought the Lord, nor even knew his word. Israel failed to learn from their mistakes. And as merciful as God is to us, when he doesn't act, we think we're getting away from something. When God doesn't act immediately, we think we've gotten away with something and we tend to compromise all the more. Hence, Israel falls into the cycle. Remember the cycle we talk about? Disobedience, discipline, and despair. Praise the Lord, it doesn't stop there because the next one is deliverance. But they fell into disobedience, then they had to be disciplined, and when they're disciplined, there was despair, and finally they were delivered. So as we begin chapter 3, Samuel wants to show us just how widespread this disobedience was. So he actually names all of the nations that were allowed to stay in the land. It's interesting because in verses 20 to 23 in chapter 2, let's read those before we begin. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. He left them there. You're not going to drive them out? Here they are. God does that sometimes. Sometimes we're in a sin. And he shows us glaringly the sin. You get caught at it. Or it glares in your face and something happens. And we don't drive it out. And God says, have at it. Go ahead. And he leaves it there until we finally come to our senses and we cry out, God, help me with my sin. <laughs> and he says, I've been waiting for you to call. I've been waiting for you until you got so disgusted with it. Remember when we read the book of Romans in chapter one? He gave them over to their debased minds. He gave them over to what they really wanted. Israel wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. So God said, hey, it's yours. He left them there. He left them there. It was in the power of God to take them out, but he left them there. It's in the power of God to take your sin away, but he leaves it there because he wants you to come to the cross. He wants you to revisit the cross, confess and repent. It's all about confession and repentance. It's all about confession and repentance. That's what God wants from you. Let's read verses one through six in 
Judges 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who dwelt in the Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Interesting. God left them there to test them. The word testing here, God wanted to prove them. He wanted to prove their faith. He wanted to prove their faithfulness of Israel to himself, and he also wanted to improve their reliance on him. What was the call from the mountain in Exodus? What was the call? Come out and serve me on this mount. You will be my people, and I will be your God. God was going to be, he wanted them to be a theocracy, which is governed by God. The name Israel means governed by God. That's what he wanted. And it's interesting that Samuel mentions all these nations, five lords of the Philistines. And every time I read that, I think of 12 days of Christmas. He says, the king of Moab in verse 25 and the rest. But if we read through and as we read through, if you keep track, the name, the Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D, meaning Jehovah God, is mentioned no less than 15 times in 31 verses. And I think Samuel did that on purpose to let us know who was really in charge. God was really in charge. This was all God's doing. He had a plan. God was in charge. He says another reason that God left the nations there so that the new generation might know war. That's interesting. Living in the land of promise had become easy. Israel needed to be challenged by an ever-present danger. And the danger was compromised with the world. Plus, the Israelites didn't have a very good army. And they needed to be prepared in case other nations would come in and try to sack them and try to get rid of them. The people had to be prepared for war. And as we continue on in the word of God, we're going to see that both King Saul and King David kept very effective armies. And they used those armies to quell any uprising that would come against their way. Now, what does it mean for us Christian? I've said this before. The Christian life that we live is not a playground. It is a battlefield. We are at war. We have an enemy. We need to know war, but we also need to know that greater is he in us than he is in the world. He's the conqueror. He is the conqueror. He has conquered. And in Christ Jesus, I am what? According to Romans, more than a conqueror. But we need to know what war is like. We need to know that we are in a war. Paul himself says, I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He wrestles against all these other things, powers of darkness and principalities and all these crazy things that he wrestles against. There's a spiritual war going on. And Frank and I often are praying and stuff like that. And we say, you know what? We really don't want to see what's going on behind us in the spiritual realm. Because if we saw it, we would probably shake in our boots when we really saw what was happening in the spiritual realm. But we're at war. We're at war with Satan, and he wants to destroy you. He wants to take you down. We're at war with the world. The world wants to take you down. We're at war with our flesh. Our flesh wants to take you down. How do we fight this war? Through the word of God. 
We fight the war by knowing the word of God, by knowing it richly and let it dwelling in us. So we can admonish one another, so we can raise one another up, so we can call each other on standards. Hey man, what about this? You're slipping here. I love you enough to tell you that you're falling down, that you're disobedient to God. I love you enough to tell you that we have a problem here. Why? So that the person you're talking to will confess and repent. Get right with God. Look at the headlines, folks. If you don't think that the days are fast approaching when the Lord is coming, you're sadly mistaken. And it's happening faster and faster and faster and faster. Can't keep up with it. Verse 4 was perhaps the biggest test. The biggest failure of Israel is that they did not show the love of God to other nations. Instead, they looked at them and said, why should we follow a God when you're not even following this God? You're not even abiding by his commandments. God tested them to see if they would uphold his commandments in the midst of paganism. We're being tested today. We're being tested today constantly in this world. We talk about the world all the time. We're being constantly tested. Will we uphold God? Will they see God in you or will there be no difference between you and the world? And what do they see? Do they see somebody coming against the world in Christ's name? Not on my own strength, but in Christ's name? Or do you see you compromising with the world, being part of the world? And if they don't see a difference between you and the world, why should they accept what you have? See, Israel was curious about these other nations. They were curious about them. That was the first step toward their conformity. That's the problem with the world. We get curious about something. We see something. Oh, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that. And most of the times it's just a click away. And we click away and boom. Next thing you know, we're conforming to it. So easy. But we have the tools to defeat it. We've been given the tools to defeat it. So what did God do with Israel? He treated them like pagans. He treated them like pagans because they were acting like pagans. They were acting like pagans, so God treated them like pagans. So we read of Israel affairs now. Let's examine what God's faithfulness was because God says, okay, Israel, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take from among you ordinary men and ordinary women, and I am going to raise them up. I'm going to raise them up. I'm not going to impart my spirit upon them so that they are going to now be great leaders among you and deliver you from the hands of those that are oppressing you. Hence the name judges. He raises up ordinary men and women to serve as judges. We look at the first one. His name is Othanel. Read in verses 7 through 11. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and Ashtoreths. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served him eight years. Then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. And his hand prevailed over the king of Mesopotamia. You are when God raised up judges to bring the people of Israel back to himself, he did it in unusual ways. He chose a variety of men and women, strong and timid alike. These judges were given tasks to show God's power to the Israelites and the enemy, and God accomplished his goals in an unexpected fashion each time. 
God can and does use creative ways to reveal who He is, proving that He's the only one who could have made it happen. As you follow God and learn to rely on Him, He will reveal Himself to you as well. It may not be in the ways you'd normally expect, but you can be sure it will be in the way God knows best. Are you praying for God to move in your life? We'd be happy to come alongside you and support you with prayer as well. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that number is 609-884-5821. We are pleased we're able to bring you teachings from God's Word on each new edition of Assure Hope. If you'd like to hear more from this series in the book of Judges, visit assurehoperadio.com. There are several teachings on various books of the Bible available online for download, and we encourage you to share them with friends and family. That's all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in to our message today. May God bless you as you continue to study His Word. Pastor Dave will continue to walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Judges when you join us next time, right here on Assure Hope.